In her book, Beautiful People, Women of Color Decentralizing Innovation and Beauty, my guest, Sadicha Hakari, provides an honest look at how incredible beauty founders like Rianne Silva of Beauty Blender and Tony Co, the founder of NYX Cosmetics, overcame adversity to thrive in the beauty industry. And she gets honest because sometimes beauty isn't so pretty. In our conversation, which is in three parts, we speak about Sadicha's own journey from a beauty lover to a beauty brand creator with her nail polish subscription service, Inga Company. By the end of this series, you'll not only know the stories of these incredible beauty entrepreneurs, but you're going to learn some insider tips that are usually reserved for the halls of MBA schools and brand and product development meetings. I mean, that's what I do for a living. You're going to learn all of that here, right on the Beauty in the Barrio podcast. And I hope it inspires you, empowers you, and educates you to just keep on going. Make sure you subscribe and let's jump right in. Of course, I'm already feeling inspired. We haven't even started the conversation. <laughs> You're so wonderful. So I am a huge fan of your book. I think it is phenomenal. And I, I'm going to link it so that everyone can go to it and get it from their major retailers, because I think it is an incredible read. As a woman of color who's also in business, I felt very seen. And a lot of the things that I went through, I felt very vindicated by reading your work. And I wanted to ask you, what is your history with beauty and finance? Sure thing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words on the book. It is both a blessing and a curse that so many women have called a woman of color have come up to me and have said, oh, this book resonates with me so much, right? Because ultimately it's about how women of color are marginalized in, in most instances, but particularly in the beauty industry too. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to hear that people can find an opportunity to relate, but ultimately it's very sad to see that everybody kind of goes through this experience. Um, beauty and business and finance, uh, not a lot of intersection there in my life. I mean, my relationship beauty, much like many other women or many other people who have explored beauty products probably started when I was a teenager and I was allowed to, you know, buy makeup. I had my own money to buy makeup at a certain age. And so I sort of started exploring, like, how do I want to express myself? How do I want to find beauty products? So much like for many other people, my relationship with beauty kind of, you know, began when I was in my preteen years trying to hide acne and trying to put on eyeliner and all of that. Oh, yeah. Um, Me too. I was not doing a wing when I was a teenager. (laughs) I was using pencil eyeliner like really heavily only in my uh, waterline and not anything above. So I always looked like I was either crying or really tired because I would get really cheap makeup from the drugstore and it Mm -hmm. would run by the end of the day because I was a sweaty teenager in New York City. I'm a sweaty Um, teenager, I get it. You're you're making it sound a lot more glamorous than it was. It was really like, oh, what can I buy for like $6 and get away with in my, you know, middle school and high school experience. Um, So that's that. And then my, my relationship with really business and finance and sort of that angle started much later. Um, So I was a government and East Asian studies when I was an undergrad. So really didn't do anything related to business. I was really focused on 
um, you know, Japanese um, language and history. Like that was what really drew me to East Asian studies. And then I did international relations for um, my other major. And so I always thought I would end up in DC, which I eventually ended up in DC、mm-hmm. doing lots of sort of politics stuff.、Um, and then I started working in. Nonprofit fundraising, and then eventually found my way through business school because I realized that, you know, I've always been very entrepreneurial. I've、yeah. always been interested in sort of problem solving. I've always been interested in the elements that usually come up in business settings. And so, and I really wanted to make money. Like, I wanted to think about setting myself up for long term success, setting my family up for long term success. And so, kind of pivoted into business school in that way, or kind of pivoted into business in that way, and then ended up going to business school at Georgetown. And that's really where I found these paths intersecting when I learned about sort of product development cycles and, you know, some of the decisions companies tend to make when. Determining whether or not to release a product, what the life cycle of a product looks like, what are、um, even like the distribution of the C suite of a company, how does that、yeah. sort of come into play when making decisions? And while I've always approached anything in my life from a、um, race and gender perspective in considering, you know, how outcomes would be different with a more diverse、uh, input. Mm-hmm. I think the beauty industry particularly struck me because I saw that a lot of the C suite、um, and a lot of the board members in beauty industries in a you know, set of companies that are primarily serving people, women, people who identify as women,、uh, were primarily white men. And so I sort of started exploring that a little bit in business school and、um, wanted to like, Explore that right through a white paper or through some sort of research project. But it turns out that the problems facing、um, exclusion in the beauty industry are a lot deeper than just, you know, a、I'm、research paper. Yeah. And so it really, much like anything else, it spiraled from there, right? I sort of realized this and I was like, Well, I could write about sort of gender exclusion in、uh, the C suite of beauty industries, but the really thing to think about there, it's not very different from any other business, right? Like the same reasons that white men are,、uh, it's easier for white men to grow in any business. It's the same for the beauty industry. So I wanted to sort of take a look at the industry from the lens of how are women of color. Included, or a better term is excluded from、yeah. product development and、um, you know, the thought process in evolving the beauty industry, and how, how can we learn from the mistakes others have made and sort of you know, think about being more inclusive in the future? So, long winded answer because my relationship with beauty and business has been very long winded. and Has had a late intersection, but that's sort of how I got to thinking about this concept overall. I love that. And we're coming at you live. Like, this is unedited, unscripted. So you're going to hear what you hear. And I'm、100%. excited. It's going to get juicy in the best possible ways. Good. So 
I wanted to ask you about, there's a part in your book that really resonated with me. And when I first saw it, I immediately knew that I needed to reach out to you. And it was a story of you going into the drugstore, going to purchase these foundation colors, getting a plethora of colors, not a single one matched your skin tone. And you had also talked about in your book how you were real, like you have makeup skills, but you were under the impression that it was you, like you were not good at doing the makeup. So you were internalizing this. And I wanted to ask you, how did that inspire you? Women especially tend to internalize a lot of external problems and take it as, as our own. And so this is this is very similar to a conversation I was having at work the other day about how we shouldn't blame um, the imp or sorry the lack of uh, women's you know confidence and um, growth on something like the imposter syndrome because oh, it, oh, yes. it internalizes yes. um, real you know societal things that are happening that impact why women tend not to advance as far in business. And so similarly, I think I just never would have even thought that it was a societal problem or a business problem or mm -hmm. something outside of me that was like impacting my abilities to do makeup. And, you know, you say I had a lot of skills and normally I'm, I'm a little bit, oh, you know, I was fine. I had a lot of makeup skills. Like I was really invested. <laughs> Again, getting rid of that that imposter syndrome or whatever it is. Cut it. No, we we talk ourselves up big here. A hundred percent. Um, and so I was like really knee deep in the world of YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, so much in specifically in in sort of beauty influencers, and I followed a lot of them who are very famous now from the get go. And what I would do is I would, you know, do all of these like CVS concoctions, I call them, of like <laughs> going to CVS and checking to see if a shade works, it doesn't, trying to mix and match. And like, you know, the shade ranges available at, at drugstores were wow. never, are never inclusive. Yeah. Um, this is not a thing in the past, but I would try to make it work and like, I would, you know, find something that was close and then look up that um, foundation number on YouTube to see which creators use similar shades so I can look at other brands they use and try to match complexion match in that way. Eventually, you know, when I got much older, um, I had money to go to Sephora mm -hmm. and Sephora also came out with that color match thing where they point a machine to your skin and they tell you what your skin tone is and what, you know, foundations you can buy and all of that. So stuff came out later on that could like help me figure that out. And I had more, you know, opportunities to go to places like Sephora and buy makeup. But like mm -hmm. when I was in high school, I, I didn't. Yeah, we don't got no money. Yeah, I was buying stuff from the drugstore, and I'm glad I was because I, if I had access to a Sephora, I would probably not buy the right thing, and it would have been even a bigger waste of money. But yeah, I spent a lot of my teenhood experimenting with makeup, unsuccessfully. So, always assumed it was me, you know, not really understanding how my complexion changes or like how things oxidize and whatever else, um, not knowing that it was, you know, a much bigger problem that needed addressing. 
I always wondered if we face a type of skin tone or beauty dysmorphia, like a body dysmorphia, when we finally realize what our actual skin tone is and being able to somehow reconcile it with ourselves. Because I know that for me, I was in high school and I was buying a lot of really expensive makeup. I literally worked just so that I could afford my mm. foundation. Like I would pick up a shift and say, gonna get that new lip gloss. Yeah. <laughs> that was like the whole reason I did it. Wow. It's like, yeah, baby, Chanel has my name on it. Like that's always been my vibe. But even now, cause they stopped making my foundation color and I started using other ones. Once I finally, like you said, like Sephora and these big brands have uh, the Pantone capabilities where they're able to see your skin and really kind of more accurately match you to what they have or mm -hmm. get close enough. What was shocking to me is how different my skin tone actually was from everything that I own. Mm. Like I didn't, I did not know what my skin tone actually was. Like even now, like I'll have a filter and I'm so much tanner and I've always associated that with how I actually look. Girl, I am not that tan. <laughs> so yeah. I, like, I would look like a mess. I'm just, with you. I mean, I think I had that realization when I learned that you're supposed to match your foundation to your neck uh, mm -hmm. and not your, your face because your face is going to be a few shades lighter anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of that moment for me. But I mean, it's it's tough out there. Like I, I tan very easily yeah. in the summer and very quickly in a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. So much so that I almost, I, I need a different shade of foundation for like the different like pre-summer, summer, and post-summer because <laughs> I tan so quickly and so drastically that like the, the foundation I had for February no longer works. It's so uh, true. Again, eventually once I started going to Sephora, I, I learned about using bronzers to kind of you know, dilute your foundation and make it darker for like, I learned some tricks to kind of help mm -hmm. mitigate that. But I, I felt like I was, you know, part of a system that was made so that I would fail, right? Like right. I work really hard. I find a foundation shade that works for me for February. Great. Two months later, I'm a different color. And now that the one I had finally figured out doesn't work for me. Doesn't do anything for you. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a stressful process to say the it, least. It is. And I think what I love about your book is that you speak very candidly of the fact that women of color and these amazing women in business had a hill to climb. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. as if, you know, someone looked at them and said, oh, you're a woman, you're a woman of color. The customers that you want to serve are also women of color. Like here goes money, here goes support. That did not happen. And can you walk my listeners through some of the interviews that you had and, and what you found was, if not the overarching theme, but something very, um, there was some continuity between the different cases. Yeah. Um, happy to, I mean, you know, every founder and every sort of business story that I write about, you know, has their own unique, uh, perspective and their unique learning experiences. So while it is difficult to sort of, you know, thread the stories through one lesson learned, I, and, and as much as I hate to sort of, um, lead with this point, um, given these stories, and I'll, I'll explain why that is. A lot of it is about resilience, right? So mm -hmm. like Vicky Sai, for example, when she was founding um, Tatcha, 
she was told that, uh, you know, or when she was sort of shopping Tatcha around to uh, buyers, she was told that Asian beauty is not aspirational. I cannot. So, so she sort of had to, she was forced to find her own opportunities to advance mm -hmm. the brand. Um, similarly, Rianne Silva, um, who founded Beauty Blender, kind of got, you know, uh, cornered into the, the makeup artist industry, which was a profession, um, or still, she still sometimes practices makeup art, but she was told, or she was kind of cornered into working with artists of color exclusively because she wasn't right. able to find broader opportunities. And so as a result of that, she was able to understand how different um, skin tones work with different foundations. And that eventually ended up becoming, you know, why Beauty Blender was founded to make sure that like foundation looks seamless on anybody, no matter, you know, what their skin texture is like and no matter what their skin color is like. And so a lot of the stories do become about resilience and being forced to find an opportunity to advance these brands when society, you know, wasn't ready for them or outright rejected them. But it kind of, I'm kind of bothered by, you know, giving resiliency such a pedestal in this conversation. Right. Yeah. Let's be tough. It's no right. Be because tough. it's like you were mean to these women and they found a way in spite of the meanness to become mm -hmm. successful, how many more opportunities would we see in the world if these women were given a chance? From the very if we beginning. lived in a world where these women were given a chance. So, exactly. you know, although resilience is a common theme we see, that's not something I'm like, you know, aspiring to. That's not, I don't want it to be that this industry is really tough. Let's find a way to succeed in spite of that. Like we should yeah. be finding ways to remove the toughness. So that's my, you know, non-answer answer for you no th that is exactly how i feel personally um mm -hmm. i am a big proponent of do not call me your strong friend do not give me the strong black woman title i do not want it mm -hmm. uh, i don't want a harder time and then a parade for my suffering later it right. is what you would do for someone who does not look like me do you need to do that for me yeah you know, and, and it's really interesting because it, not interesting, but um, I feel like we have a at least a, a social shift to saying, you know what, strength is overrated. This resiliency nonsense is overrated. We need to give women opportunities. And I find that but people really it's almost like emotional porn. They really love the struggle, mm -hmm. and the struggle behind the story when it comes from women of color and beauty and I wonder because you have your own brand, mm -hmm. nail uh, nail polishes, and mm -hmm. and I am. I want to hear from you. What has your experience been like? And we're going to dive deep in parts two and three of this discussion into that. But I do want to hear what was your inspiration and what has your experience been like thus far? Yeah. So the inspiration was really having written this book and seeing how many of the founders, particularly ones who came later in the in the chronological order of the stories and how um, they took inspiration from some of the other founders I write about and said, you know, if they can do it, why can't I? So I kind of had the same thought of if, if they can do it, why can't I? Particularly because there's a lot of, um, you know, like you said, there's a social shift these days. And one of those is, 
to really focus on, um, or not focus on, but I guess the rise of independent brands and kind of the rejection of, of mainstream brands and really thinking about, you know, values-based buying, really thinking about knowing the founders, um, and, and knowing the company before making a purchase. And so it does seem like now more than ever, there's an opportunity for, younger brands to come out and and make a name for themselves um so we're launching in good company which is the name of the nail polish brand in launching in may so really like the hiccups so far have just been not knowing how to go about the process of starting a company and so kind of learning that ourselves doing a ton of research there's a lot of red tape and like establishing an llc for example and things like that so you know, we haven't reached the stage of, you know, reaching out to investors. We haven't reached the stage of really thinking about like influencer marketing or anything because we're just starting out. But it's it's a very tough industry out there. It's extremely competitive. I do think there's, you know, a lot of innovation to be done in mm-hmm. the world of nail polish because all people know is like SE and OPI and that's pretty much it. Um, but since, uh, going on this venture of starting this brand, I've, I've come across a lot of really incredible independent brands. There's one, uh, where they name all of their nail polish after food. There's another one that is, um, created by, um, by and for the people of Hawaii. And so I've, I've come across some really cool and interesting causes that I, as mm-hmm. a consumer, would support. I would have never encountered those if it wasn't for my research in, in trying to start this company. Like, I definitely was in the SE and OPI camp because that's kind of all I knew. But there's a lot more out there. Um, so, yeah, the, the adventure so far has been doing a lot of background work and establishing like what really is the concept? What is the differentiating factor? How will our potential customers react to this? And all of the logistic things that comes with um, starting a company, right? So yeah, but we're we're over that hump at this point. And now we're focused on really how do we want to message what we want to message? What does our marketing look like? What kind of photography do we want? So kind of making some of the you know, user level decisions at this point. That is really awesome. So you went to business school, as we talked about, you went to Georgetown. Did you find Mm -hmm. that, because I'm a big believer and one of the things that is a consistent message on this podcast is that you can leverage your spending power, that a woman's spending power, a woman of color spending power is so much more than what we think it is. It's, it can move the needle. We just have to know what direction to move it in and know our worth. And I want to know when you were in business school, did you find that there was either a focus or a lack thereof of women led women owned businesses in particular in the aesthetic space that it wasn't that you were pushed towards going into things that were considered more woman friendly because at the UC suite executive level, most of the people in beauty are, are, are men in particular, they're white men. So did you find that mm-hmm. in beauty school, you were not you weren't really pushed to that direction or was there a lack of information for the beauty industry? Is that something that we are even talked about in most business schools or at least in your business school? Uh, how did that play in? A hundred percent. 
No, um, <laughs> absolutely not. So I, business school is really focused on honestly, Southwest Airlines, like the amount of case studies I did on Southwest Airlines was so insane because Southwest Airlines has a very interesting operating model that kind of trickles down to uh, customer experience, right? Because so you go in and you, I don't know if you've ever flown Southwest, I but you like Southwest, so I want all the tea. <laughs> I mean, the tea is what you have, right? Yeah. It's a really interesting uh, case study for the customer experience aspect of it, the sort of um, flexibility they're able to have mm -hmm. uh, trickles down to financing decisions, operating decisions, and all of that. So every single class had a Southwest Airlines case that oh, was like good. specific to that subject matter. I was sick of talking about and listening to things about Southwest Airlines by the end of business school. So do you own that being said, or like Delta? I have. I have never flown Southwest Airlines because I, I grew up in New York City and then I moved to DC. Mm -hmm. So I, like, it's kind of hard to find Southwest yeah. Airlines here anyway. But, um, I, you know, I'd be hard pressed to get on a Southwest <laughs> Airlines flight after hearing that so Great. much. I do. I hear they have very good perks, which is, uh, you know, which is a cool thing to think about. But no, so, so kind of a focus on, you know, industries like that left very little room for um for what i would call you know non-traditional industries mm -hmm. from from business school from the business school lens so what i did towards the end of my business school experience i was taking a lot of electives where there were opportunities to like choose your own project and to design your own project mm -hmm. and so every single time i could pick a project you know I, in, in sort of group projects, I naturally tend to take on the role of like the leader. And so I would just say, oh, what about Fenty Beauty? I would love to explore their okay. like financial history. Mm -hmm. Or what about Ulta? Like I would love to explore how they're expanding into stores, you know? So I would choose classes like that. And then I would just honestly make my group work on something that I was interested in. So towards the end of my business school experience, um, through a lot of sort of customer strategy and marketing classes, I was able to get a good foundational understanding, I would say, about the business industry, which kind of pairs with like this whole, you know, exploration of the book and how that thing started uh, in the first. I love that. I really do. And I am a huge fan of a boss babe woman doing her thing yeah. in the business space and saying no baby this is what we're going to talk about yes yeah and you know people were interested like it was also a new even you know the men like it was a new opportunity men who didn't wear makeup it was a new opportunity for them to explore a new industry and so you know I, I never had resistance on that right like yes it is I'm sure everybody was tired of talking about Southwest Airlines by the end of it. So I, I think everybody was happy when, you know, we got to pick anything else to talk about. American Airlines is like, yes, yes. <laughs> oh my God. I, I wonder if that's like school specific, because I have to ask at CMU, like uh, Carnegie Mellon University, which is mm -hmm. a huge business school here for people who don't know what CMU is. Um, 
I wonder if, you know, like on this side, it's like American Airlines because of their ties with Amex. I I doubt it highly. I, I doubt it highly, you know? I mean, look, no shade to them. If you would like to sponsor me, your girl is happy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I'll, hi. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. But I, I wonder that. Um, so you say like your classmates and everyone was very supportive. Did you find that some of the buy-in also came from really showing the numbers that women spend? Or was it a mm -hmm. known fact that the beauty industry is so expensive? Because I feel like most people, in particular men who don't wear makeup or who do not know about it, really don't understand the the financial boom of the beauty industry. It's kind of like a, oh, my girlfriend spends thirty dollars on lipstick. You know, that's so silly. And then they proceed to spend like two hundred dollars on a pair of sneakers. But I was wondering, yeah. um, how was that for you? How did you get that buy-in? Other than you know being like gung-ho, which I love that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, you know, is showcased through different stories in the book too. Um, so one example is Deepika Matiala, who was the founder of Live Tid Did. Um, in her, you know, first conversations with investors, she's she sort of, um, or not investors, retailers, I think. The feedback she got was, you know, is it worth focusing on the South Asian community solely. And she was like, the South Asian community is massive. massive. Even if you're thinking about the South Asian community in the United States, forget like the international diaspora. Yes. This is a massive, massive industry. You're making millions, if not billions of dollars, billions. even if it is just focusing on this industry. So okay. that's kind of one side of the argument that, you know, didn't work at the time. I think ultimately people understood what that meant now that there's more um, identity specific products coming out in the market. Um, so that's one example. Another example, um, KJ and Amanda um, were focused on sort of, you know, they, they ended up taking a very finance first approach when they were having conversations with investors. Mm -hmm because they realized that that's what would work in a room full of people who are like, oh, is this a shampoo? You know what I mean? It just yeah. is the best way. Showing financial value is the best way to communicate to investors like what the return is going to be because they're ultimately they're concerned about return on investment exactly. and they want to make sure they're making the right one. So I kind of get it, um, but it does feel like, you know, we're... I think sometimes it does feel like we're kind of speaking different languages, yeah. even though we're trying to say the same thing, that there's a product that's filling a gap in the market that has a lot of mm -hmm. value and potential. And obviously, if it was a tech product, like I'm sure investors would jump at it immediately. But something about being a cosmetics product always causes, I'm sure, I, I've never been part of those conversations, but like I'm I sure have. it causes a lot more <laughs> scrutiny and questions than I would love to hear from you. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, is that true? Like, do you feel like there's more scrutiny in pitching a beauty product to an investor? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 110%. Yeah. And part of the issue is the fact that the people who you're speaking to either don't actually wear the products themselves or they find it to be something very trivial. So it is, mm -hmm. uh, it, and like you said, it's a numbers game. It's going to an investor and saying that this particular segment of the US population spends 
XYZ trillions of dollars or billions of dollars. But on the, the argument against that is, well, they're spending that money now and the product is not available. So where is the incentive to create the product? And then try and pull that data and present that data when it often doesn't exist because a lot of people who would research it, either they don't have a vested interest or they've brought it into that idea of, well, the product doesn't exist. People are still making do. And so long as we're still making the money, you're going to have to really work overtime to convince me to invest millions of dollars, which goes into any one particular product. And I may not get the return on investment. And unfortunately, like you were saying, people forget about the diaspora. You know, like the South Asian community is gigantic. Like that, it's billions of people. But the way that the investors are going to see it, the financiers to the laboratories that are actually creating the product when they're talking about, um, you know, resource allocation, it is very much so the person who lives in their neighborhood. It's like, having and, and watching the differences in the conversations between um, something like a um, lip filler being created. It's, well, we have a ton of people who are going to use this versus a foundation that is in Fitzpatrick skin colors three through six, which is a medium brown to a very dark brown. It's, well, I don't know how many of those people would buy this product. And it's the majority of the world is Fitzpatrick three to six. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, it's not some abstract thought. The majority of the planet that we live on are Fitzpatrick scale three to six. But yeah. tying that into the dollar amount is really difficult because again, unfortunately, these same people are under the impression of, well, if they're not buying it now, and if they're still buying what we have available, what's the incentive to then take those resources and, and buy them. Because I remember we had mentioned in a previous recording conversation how, um, and this is no shade to anybody who's not Fitzpatrick's uh, three to six, mm -hmm. there is an abundant amount of white skin shade foundations, a ton beyond the colors of the actual people who are capable of buying it. It is unreal. And yeah. I have yet to find from a laboratory perspective, from a product development end, why that is. Because <laughs> they're taking two of the Fitzpatrick scales, one and two, literally, and expanding them out into these colors. And even white women are like, um, this actually doesn't match my skin, but it's available mm -hmm. and it's being produced on a wide scale because people are buying it. The marketing belief that the people who are able to buy it and can afford to purchase it don't look like the people who are within the other skin tone ranges. So yeah. I mean, I think that's that's exactly it, right? It's it's lack of evidence that leads to lack of products that leads to lack of evidence that leads to lack, lack of products. products. So, <clears throat> I, I talk about this a little bit in the book too, but you know, historically, like beauty ideals have even today, but historically they've developed as extremely white centric yes. so much so that, you know, women of color, for example, were not allowed to be part of American beauty pageants until nice. like the 1940s or something like that. Right. And so when you think about <clears throat> the time when mass product development was happening in the, you know, industrial revolution and in the 
time of, of American history where people were, were producing products at mass quantities, it was also at the time where um, visibility for American beauty ideals was very, very high. And so when you start developing products, you're going to develop products to match those beauty ideals, which were mainly for white women. And so that's kind of how it all started. And then it kind of just continued from there, right? Because if you're just producing products for white women, only white women are going to buy those products and you're going to see a return on, on the products you're making because they're selling. And then you're going to continue making products for white women. And then you're going to continue doing that. Exactly. Slowly, sure, you will introduce, you know, products for people of color because you want to expand into that market. But like, it's not going to be good enough because you're not going to have enough evidence for sales yeah. for the darker shades. You're going to continue catering to white women. And, and so shades aren't even the dark. What was that? I said, and the shades aren't even dark. Like, like you, you ever see those brands where they're like tan, dark, darkest, and the darkest shade is like, you know, God, love. I love her. I want to stress this. She is, I love her. She's my style guru icon. But I remember mm -hmm. there was a scene with, don't be mad, Bobby Brown. I've worn your products. <laughs> but there was a scene with her and Meghan Markle in the car back when she was on Suits. And she was showing her these products and she was using a concealer crayon of some sort and placed it on her skin. And she said, no, that's the color dark. Where is Meghan Markle dark, but in her brunette hair? Mm -hmm. Where? And I'm with you. Like, you know what I mean? And so we have these brands where, they're making colors that are supposed to go through all the ranges, but they're still starting at the very lightest of person of color possible. Yeah. No, I, that's that's exactly what it is. And that's partially why a lot of the like more up and coming brands like Mented Cosmetics, mm -hmm. for example, has found so much success is because they actually test their products and develop their products with women of color in mind and not necessarily as an afterthought of, hey, let's add 10 more shades because we're going to get slaughtered in the markets if we don't yeah, have 40 we're shades. we're going to get canceled. <laughs> right? Like the 40 shades of foundation I've seen, it's like 30 shades for white people yeah. and like 10 shades that range a ridiculous number for women of color. Yeah. So and there's always like one brownish of orange color that no yeah. one is like no one looks like that we all look at the bottle and wonder who is that <laughs> it's donald trump it's let me tell you <laughs> that's who's using that we found out <laughs> so, oh my goodness. very complex system i mean you know finance like you said earlier right like proof of financial benefits is what drives these decisions, but it's hard to make that, it's hard to come up with that proof when there's no actual opportunities in the market. Um, so yeah, yeah, exactly. What I find, and I, I'm wondering if this has been your experience as well, is that to their credit, a lot of, and, and this has been something that I've been looking into that many white women, in fact, do use the quote unquote POC brands. So it's not as if they mm -hmm. don't use them. I know many white women who are like, I love Shea Moisture and I, I use Cantu on my ends and they only use Fenty. So it's like someone's pitting people against people and we're all losing. <laughs> no one's winning here. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what brands like Fenty has, has done is made it, you know, they were not the first company to come up with 40 shades Mm -hmm. of foundation, but they made it mainstream to care about representation in brands, right? They, they said, okay, we're going to have 40 shades that are helpful and inclusive for women of color, but we're also going to plaster that across all of our branding and marketing. And this is really what we're going to be known for. Mm -hmm. And so that I think, you know, brought to attention the thing I'm trying to say from my book is that, hey, things aren't inclusive, but we're trying to be. So I think, you know, that has helped a lot of allies find opportunities to, to support in that way. And like, you know, Mended Cosmetics also has a lot of um, white women represented in their marketing and on their Instagram and all of that. So, you know, there's no, there's no exclusion here, uh, except for exclusion from the brands who have been catering exclusively to white women, right? Like the exclusion exclusion was happening before. This is what inclusion looks like. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I, I know that, um, I believe inclusion increases market share, or at least that's something Mm -hmm. that we should see. And paying for our listeners, our viewers, what does that mean to you? What does that inclusion look like to you? Like if you could, with a magic brush, just in the beauty industry, just right now, doesn't have to be high level because that's a loaded question, but what would that inclusion look like for you? Is it just imagery? Is it jobs? How would you define I mean, I think it's, you know, if I were to give a superficial answer, it would be in more, you know, variety in foundation shades. Like I want to see just as many options for women of color as I see for white women. Yes. Um, But if I'm thinking about it from a, you know, logistical, programmatic long-term change perspective it's really representation for women of color in board seats and executive seats because those are the people who are really the decision makers those are the people holding financial decision making power which as we've discussed is kind of the key driver of how products are developed it's also though in product testing making sure women of color are included in product testing like Another thing I experimented with in high school was eyeshadow palettes. And there were some that just didn't even show up on my skin. And now I'm like, did they even, did they even check with anybody? Like they literally did the bare minimum. They didn't check at all. all. (laughs) They were like, he's going to love it. Send to production. (laughs) They didn't even try. And so I think product testing, I think, you know, any type of decision make, I I mean, the more diversity and the more representation you have in all aspects of your business, I think C-suite and, and sort of executive, um, uh, you know, settings are, are where the most powerful decisions can, can be made. So that if I'm, if I can choose one thing, that is what I would choose for the biggest bang for my buck, but really representation needs to be infused across all aspects of the business, right? Operation, marketing, customer strategy. And so, and that, that's not only beneficial for us, the consumers, but 
the more diverse viewpoints, the more diverse representation people and companies have, the the better the ideas that come out will be, right? There's just more of more options to choose from in terms of ideas people are coming up with and solutions people are coming up with. So to me, it's a win-win situation. Like I, I don't know why people are not, you know, jumping up to hire more women of color in the beauty industry, but I and I don't know if you I, like, I don't know gonna... if you uh, looked at the news recently. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. I'm sorry. One of the executives of Estee Lauder was recently suspended, let go. I don't know what the like actual technical, you know, uh, outcome was for using mm-hmm. a for posting a very racist photo on their public Instagram. So like. Mm-hmm. We got to get rid of people like that and bring oh, in I saw. more. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure you did. Oh, um, I saw. <laughs> shot it too. <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> I maybe sent an email too. So yeah, oh, I saw. Oh my goodness. Well, good for you. <laughs> oh, people but were then... rallying. People were rallying. It was like, oh, no, no, no. You will. This will not be a delete in like a, you know, a, a little, my bad. Uh-uh. No, save, save that to the cloud or something. You can never lose that evidence, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, we got to get rid of people like that. I don't imagine anybody like that advocating for, hey, we need more foundation shades or eyeshadow palettes that actually show up on, you know, skins for women of color. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of work to be done is my final answer. Um, it, there's no like one right way of doing this and there's no one answer. It just needs to be a massive effort to infuse different viewpoints across all parts of these businesses. Part of what I wonder is if people with that mindset genuinely believe that, well, women of color are probably using something else. They're doing something else. There's something out there. And then it becomes that, you know, if you see something happening and it's, oh, someone should do something, someone should do something, and it just kind of continues. And I wonder how much of that is playing a role in the the decisions that are being made. From my own personal experience, it's definitely um, evidence of the the observer effect or the Hawthorne effect where Mm -hmm. the brands don't, they don't actually care until there's public spectacle. And then it's, then you have the brands that care. And then you have some where the brands in fact do care but either the board members or the investors or their customer base is so homogenous and isolated that it would be a complete brand pivot, one that they're not willing to make. And I do wanna go into that about brand pivots because one of the things I wanted to ask you is, I know you're early in the development stages of your personal brands, but do you have any, and I don't wanna put fear into your heart, that's not my vibe, but do you have any at least strong concerns that when you do grow, if you are brought out or if you plan to merge, how you're going to stick with your desires and your integrity and this strong passion to center women of color or people of color who are using your products? Because as we've seen with some POC-owned brands, once they're either acquired or they've gone under new management, something along those lines, that mission tends to get a little in the weeds. Um, and, and, it, and it may not happen because look at Tiffany & Co. Who would have thought? 
Yeah. I never would have thought, and I'm so happy because I love Tiffany's. It's my favorite brand, but I never would have thought, you know, yeah. what a pivot. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to stick to your principles when they're developed alongside your company from the ground up. And my co-founder Grace and I, since, since we thought of this idea, we're like, hey, equity and inclusion needs to be a very, very core part of this company. And that's a non-starter for us both. And we sort of just agreed on that from the get-go, right? So we've been very, very um, adamant about that in all parts of our decision-making process, right? I, diversity and inclusion is one thing. I think sort of recycling and thinking about the impact we're making on earth and trying to be yes. as sustainable as as our business allows us to be. I mean, sustainability is a privilege and we're yeah. hoping to be in a spot one day where we can make 100% sustainable decisions. But sometimes for a company that's starting out, that's just not possible. So mm -hmm. sustainability is the other one. And I think giving back to the community and like, really thinking about how are we leaving this world better than we found it. Those are sort of the three things we said. It is just always going to be a core part of who we are as people. And we want to make sure that's infused within our company. And so I, you know, I don't see any scenario in which we give those up or relax those no matter how good the offer is, because we've already made so many um, financial and operational sacrifices to accommodate yeah. those three principles that like, you know, it, it's it's what we live by, right? There's no stemming away from that. So that's always gonna be a core part of the company. Um, that being said, if and when there are partnership or merging or investment opportunities in the future, those are the three pillars we'll look at to evaluate those opportunities, right? We'll say, well, who are we partnering with? What do they care about? And as long as we're checking off those boxes, we will never have to give up any one of those principles because we'll always work with people who espouse the same values. Mm -hmm. So that's, we have sort of thought about that. And like, you know, unfortunately in the world, there is a give and take between choosing to have principles and not being as, have profit. <laughs> yeah profit not being as <laughs> not having partnership opportunities you know there's yep. a lot of things to give up but what is the point of all of this if we're not going to be true to who we are and if we're not able to sort of infuse our values to the things we're creating i love that so before we wrap up i wanted to ask you my my three questions i love to ask all my guests Mm -hmm. The first one being, what does beauty mean to you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> what, I, I forget what I said the last time, so I'll, I'll have to come up with a net new answer. Yes. I think <laughs> beauty to me, um, I think is an opportunity to kind of appreciate your true self. Mm -hmm. So when I think of like the beauty products I use, I try to sort of enhance the features that I already have on my face and my hair and like kind of, you know, try to bring those out a little bit more instead of taking the route of like, let me cover up every, you know, blemish and every eyebrow bald spot I have. And so beauty is supposed to be a tool that helps you enhance your true self and enhance who you are. 
And if who you are is like, you know, making changes to the way you look, or if it is covering up, that that really is everybody's prerogative. But um, to me, like, it's supposed to give you more confidence. It's supposed to, you know, bring out your features. It's supposed to help you bring out yourself. I love that. So my second question for you is, what age you, whether it be your inner child, five ago, five years ago, you, 10 years ago, you, what version of you would look at who you are right now and just be so proud and amazed? Oh my goodness. Um, honestly, me in college, like I've changed so much since I was in college. I have completely different sort of um, career aspirations um, that are more aligned, I think, with what my personality is like and what best fits me. So I'm glad I didn't like force myself into a box of X, Y, and Z and kind of just followed what I was interested in and what best fit my skill set. But also, I think I'm most proud of how entrepreneurial I've become and how I'm like, venturing out there and writing a book and, you know, starting a beauty brand. And I was just too quiet and shy to do stuff like this. Like even the idea of going to business school and having to participate a ton would probably give me hives when I was much younger, not in college. In college, I was a tour guide, so I was a lot more confident, but like middle school me, I think would be very proud, high school me, but I I think I've changed the most drastically from when I was in college to now in terms of like future goals and future plans and things like that. I love that. I also was very introverted. People do not believe that. I always tell people mm-hmm. I'm an ambivert. Do uh, not be mistaken. I am not an extrovert. I need a lot of my own alone time to recoup and like recharge. Yeah. I, I have a very uh, awesome curated personality online. People are like, yes, blah. And I'm like, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is not oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my final one for you is what is your word of the day? I'm a nerd. And so I got to ask you, mm. what is your word? It doesn't have to be a big one. doesn't even have to be in English. But what is word your word of the day? Of the day? Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say power through. Because um, I've had, A, I've had a long day full of meetings. And I've been like very hungry all day. So it really has just been, oh, power through this meeting and you can eat lunch power through this meeting and you can like zone out for five minutes, power through this run and you can check off your, you know, Apple watch activity thing for the day. Um, So today, you know, I, I like to think that I am a power through person just in my life, but today particularly has been focused on let's power through and then you can have your reward at the end of it. I love that. Power through. Word up. That's going to be the hashtag underneath this episode. Oh, good. (laughs) Thank you so much for making time to re-record and being on the podcast. It has been so much fun per usual and an absolute pleasure. I am looking so forward to part two where we are going to dive even deeper into some of the challenges and opportunities in business. And then we'll be ending with lessons for all of you to learn how you can start overcoming your fears and starting your own businesses yourselves because we're all about women empowerment here. So Sadicha, I am so grateful for you and I will of see course. you soon. Thank you so much. This was really fun and exciting. I'll chat with you next time. Thank you. Okay, bye. 
Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Beauty in the Barrio podcast. You're going to want to subscribe and make sure that you tune in to part two of Beautiful People in Good Company because that is where Satisha and I are going to dig deep on what it takes to start your own brand. We're talking about creating the company, the legal jargon, breaking it down, what it means to have proper marketing, branding, and etc. This is an episode you are not going to want to miss. So be sure to subscribe, follow me everywhere at Betila del Barrio and Beauty in the Barrio, and don't forget, take notes. We're going to go into all of the details that you need, from how to get started when you're not really sure where to go, and how to prioritize and really get things done and checked off your list. We've all been there, and that is the point of this podcast, to inspire you, to educate you, to get you ready. Because if you're listening to this podcast, if you're feeling inspired and the wheels are turning in your head, you are ready. You just need the tools. And we would like to provide you with some. Okay? Bueno. I'll see you in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe. Gracias. It's all for now.